Job chapter 32 is where we turn again this morning. Job 32 begins the four speeches of this man, Elihu, that we have just met in our, in our study from last time. His, his anger was burning. We read that, I think, four different times in the first five verses, how his anger was burning against Job, against the friends, and, and for various reasons. But ultimately, the reason was he was concerned about God's honor, God's glory, God's truth, and, and how the friends were not speaking rightly against Job, and how Job was not speaking rightly about God. Do you remember, of course, I beat this, this uh, horse into submission perhaps, but not literally, I don't have any horses here, but this idea, this rubric that the friends followed, suffering follows sin, prosperity follows piety, this is what they understood, this is what they're interpreting, all of Job's suffering. Well, Job, you sinned. You, there was some sin in your past, whether known, notorious, or hidden, as Zophar would say, that obviously that's why God is punishing you, suffering. Your, your suffering follows sin and just become pious again. The prosperity will follow your piety. That's an inversion, of course, is of Satan's accusations back in chapters 1 and 2, that piety, the only reason Job is pious is because you blessed him so much. And if you take that all away, then he will curse you to your face, and sin follows suffering. There's a measure in which Elihu reflects this, but not in a negative sense, that Job is suffering not because he had sinned, but because he is suffering, he has said some wrong things. You have spoken wrongly about God. You have, and you think, well, how does that relate to God's endorsement of him in chapter 42, that God says to, the, to Eliphaz and the th- two friends, hey, you have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. How do we say, how do we coordinate that with what Elihu is saying? Job, you're not saying things right about God. You have elevated yourself over God. You have made yourself as righteous or even more righteous than God. And you could say it this way. The friend's accusation was that, Job, you're wrong, but God is right. Job, you sinned. God is right in judging you, and therefore just accept it. Job says, no, actually, God is wrong. Whoa, that's a serious charge against God, right? And I'm the right one. Where is God? Answer me. Why is this one? This, this, this statement of God is wrong is a contention, is a, an argument with God. He's arguing, arguing against the holy God and, and says, you know, I've done all these things from my youth. I've been a blameless, upright person. And God is arbitrary. He is not paying attention to me. He's doing things that are wrong. In fact, Job says that he has wronged me. Yahweh has, or the Almighty has wronged me. And Elihu says, no, no. It's not because of your sin that you're suffering, but you have sinned in your suffering. You're speaking things that are not right. And the friends weren't able to accuse him or, or silence him. The friends, remember verse 1 says, the friends call, or ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, or excuse me, Job at the end of chapter 31 says, the words of Job are ended. He's not going to have these long speeches anymore, for which we are thankful. And yet he is going to respond twice to the Lord in his speaking uh, in chapters 38 and following. And so Job does acknowledge God's rightness, his sovereignty, his omniscience over all things, knowing all things. And so he, he repents, he retracts his statements. And at that point, uh, both what he said about God being just and holy and righteous, and he does pay attention to the righteous and he does work on their behalf, is also added to by his confessions in chapters 40 and 42 saying, God is right. I'm wrong. I repent. I shouldn't have said these things. I was speaking out of the, 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 the passion of my heart. I was saying things I didn't understand. I was accusing God of, of being wrong. God is right and whatever he does. And Elihu is the one who helps us get from God, you're wrong, I'm right, to God is right, 
and I'm right even. Job can say that because God endorses Job from the beginning chapters to the end of the chapters. God is there on Job's behalf and on Job's side so that Job would understand God better. Well, Elihu is here speaking. We looked at the first five verses last week. I don't want to rehash all those things, but notice that he did have anger. The anger was not uh, harsh in the, in the sense even the, the counselors, the friends of Job, got kind of harsh and uh, bitter against their, uh, their word, in their words against Job. Elihu is not that way. He was more concerned for God's honor, God's glory, God's truth, his renown to be celebrated. And so he speaks compassionately, words of comfort, words of reproof. But hey, you can speak words of reproof lovingly and graciously. And that's what Elihu does. So many different regards. He said in verse, was it, um, yeah, verse four, Elihu had waited with his words for Job because they were years older than he. He focuses on that in, in these first verses of his actually speaking, he had waited for a long time, hours anyway, and we looked last time, how long would it take for all these speeches to occur? matter of hours, if they all did it at once, or you know, consecutively, without breaks, and so forth. And so Elihu had been waiting all this time, because they were years older than him, he's a young man, he is, he, what, he, what did he have to endorse himself? Well, his heritage, right? He's Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, the family of Ram. That's about it because it repeats it twice uh, and in verses 2 and 6. And so he is waiting as a proper young person, waiting for, for the, um, the other people to speak and Job and all these things going on. But now he's going to have four speeches. And we see the first one in chapters 32 and 33 and then subsequently one. Uh, but the four speeches... He has specific things he's saying. We think, well, what, hasn't everything been said? This is getting kind of tedious. Can't we just run to the end? Where does God show up? Well, Elihu is there getting us ready for God's appearance, getting Job ready for God's appearance. He appeals to him. He is yearning for Job to listen to him. And he says, you know, Job, you're, you're saying that God is not speaking, but God does speak. He speaks through afflictions. He speaks through dreams. He speaks through the conscience. And so he is speaking. What are you listening to? What are you hearing from God? Not in a mystical woo-woo sense, but what are you hearing? What do you, what do you have this revelation from God about? And then in the second speech, he says, God's ways are just. Always, always, always. And he goes on to discuss that, that God does it in time, not late or not arbitrary. God is always just. Job is wrong, his third speech. Job is wrong about piety. You misunderstand it. You think, well, he, Job is operating somewhat out of that rubric, that mentality, sin follows suffering, or excuse me, suffering follows sin, uh, prosperity follows piety. He's operating somewhere out of that mentality, and Elihu says, don't think in that regard. That's the wrong way to approach piety. It's the wrong way to think about how you relate to God. Entirely wrong. And so he corrects that in his third speech. Then he comes back in chapters 36 and 37, which lead right into God himself speaking. God is great. He is great. He is tremendous. He is majestic in holiness and all these things that he celebrates, Elihu does, and speaking about God, because that's the issue. Job has heard about God. He has has had that intimate companionship with God. But there were some things that Job either didn't understand or was forgetting in the course, course of his sufferings, in the course of his agony and pain and discomfort. And so Elihu reminds him, God is great. Well, we looked in these first five verses just quickly. Anger, it's a key word. He was angry at the silence of the friends. He was angry at Job's fault-finding against God. He was angry at the friends' inconclusive reproof of Job. Just always, these, these friends, they spoke a long time, so many words and speeches and on and on and on. Nothing. It accomplished nothing. 
Job is there thinking that he's better than God and, and, and you know, maligning God and, and saying these wrong things. Where are the friends? I thought they were the wise men. These are the older people, right? They ought to know better, but they didn't. Elihu was angry and yet had that anger under control. I read it, verse 4, he waited. He didn't just you know, start uh, tearing into the guys. He waited, let them speak, give the, give the opportunity. When they quieted down and had nothing more to say, okay, it's my turn. And he enters in and speaks with his anger under control. He's angry finally at the friend's inability to answer Job. There's no answer to what Job has charged him or charged them. And, and so Elihu is there to answer. First, we see in this, in this uh, first speech that God speaks through affliction. And God speaks here, verse 6 and or six through 10 here says, Elihu, the son of Barak, held the Buzite, answered and said, I'm young in years and you're old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you my knowledge. I thought age should speak and increased years should make wisdom known. But it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I too will tell you my knowledge. And so he is appealing to these people. He says, look, I, I know I'm young. Everybody would say, you're too young. Sit down. What do you dare speak up in, in our midst? But he gave them opportunity. He listened dutifully, honorifically to those people. He said, look, I know I'm young. And it's not a slight. It's not, well, you're old people, right? No, he said, look, you're old. And therefore, I thought that you would share wisdom. Uh, I, verse 7, increased years should make wisdom known. I was waiting for wisdom but there wasn't any wisdom on your lips. You didn't effectively answer the charges, the claims, and so forth of Job. I was shy, verse 6 again says, I was shy and afraid to tell you my knowledge. I didn't I didn't want to, to step in places where I, I couldn't go. He's apologizing, really, for his age, for his inexperience, perhaps, and really saying, you know, this is why I haven't spoken to this point, but now I have to say something. Because, hey, why did, if, you, if you're so worked up about this, why didn't you speak earlier? Well, because he's a young person. He was trying to show honor and, and respect to them and give them the pride of place. But they, they couldn't do it. Elihu is, again, apologizing, but not saying, I'm sorry, but saying, this is why I was silent then, but now I'm going to speak. And he's going to have the most uh, consecutive speeches, un, unchecked or unanswered speeches uh, of all the people, including Job, and uh, consecutively anyway, and is not reproved by God at any way. Job is reproved by God. The friends are reproved by God, but Job, or excuse me, Elihu is here giving this this uh, word from the Lord, and it says, you know, we read all these things, and he's so redundant, so repetitive, so many words saying the same thing. How else can I say it repeatedly? But he, he seems like Job. I mean, Elihu, can't you just give us the condensed version? But it's again, this is poetry. This is uh, a lot of parallel thoughts and things that are going on, and so he is very careful. He's not being windy or, or overly verbose, a lot of words, but he is saying, look, the friends are arguing from a certain point of view, and even Job is somehow attached to that re- retribution principle of, of uh, sin, or excuse me, suffering, following sin, and so forth. And Elihu says, forget about that. that. That's not how things work around here. Let me tell you that the source, the authority of their message is faulty. They don't know what they're talking about. And Job had said that. What you're saying, friends, that's, that doesn't work. You, you just look around this world. We don't see your worldview work in this world. It's not practiced, this idea of, of judgment and so forth. It's not always practiced. Sometimes the righteous people suffer and sometimes the wicked people prosper. It doesn't mean uh, your, your, your rules don't apply. Elihu is saying that my 
authority. The source of my doctrine is not myself. It's not based on my uh, observation of, of history. It's not based on my rationality. It's not based on my moral conscience. It's based on God's revelation. And he speaks with an entirely different source than the friends. The friends appealed to God and said lots of things about God, but their God was a God of mechanics, a God of uh, input A and get out A prime or something. It just the, the, there, there was a rule book. And they said, just do this and this will happen. And Elihu says, no, God is not that predictable God, in the sense of we can't always know how he's going to act in any situation. We do know he's going to act in his holiness. He's going to act in his greatness, his, his all knowledge, his holiness and all these things. And so we can rest in that. But to say that he's going to do this because you're doing that, no. God is not obligated by any of our actions. He's obligated by his own promises and his own character. And that's a big difference, what he says here. He says in verse 8, again, this is the getting to the heart of this difference of authority. Verse 8 says, It is a spirit and man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. Well, okay, so it's a spirit and man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. He has these two ideas, the spirit and breath. He says the spirit and man. Is that the, the human spirit, the soul, the spirit that we talk about, the inner man, as uh, Paul would say in the New Testament? Uh, is that the inner inner uh, humanity aspect of, of a person? Well, he contrasts that, or not contrasts, but augments it with the statement, the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. We see these two words, spirit and breath, uh, related many times in Scripture, even from the beginning, beginning chapters of Genesis, when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living spirit, or it's a bit different term there, but same idea, soul, spirit that's going on there. And that has to do with life. It has to do with coming to, to live. And we think, oh, so God, anybody who has the spirit, anybody who's alive, right, can speak on behalf of God. Well, obviously not, because those, I mean, just back up a verse. I thought age should speak and increased years should make wisdom known. But obviously you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what God himself has revealed. Because not just any living person can acclaim have a claim to truth, only those who are adhering to God's revelation. And so when we, we see this phrase, the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, it is, I think, referring to the spirit of God indwelling uh, Elihu as one who is speaking on behalf of God, even as the scripture speaks about David, who by the spirit spoke these words. Or uh, in Peter's writings, he talks about the, the men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Or when you have oft-repeated phrase in the King James, thus saith the Lord, right? Who's this Lord guy saying? And why is he saying it through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel? Because he's using human instruments to reveal his word. And so in verse 8, it's not just, hey, any living person can speak God's truth. No, it's only those who have, if you don't mind, the capital S, spirit. It is the spirit indwelling, motivating a person. And it's the breath of the Almighty, the, the In the words of 2 Timothy 3, 16, every scripture is breathed out by God. It's kind of a weird translation of a single word in Greek, breathed out by God, but it has to do with his spirit uh, in inspiring the the scriptures for us to to, uh, believe and, and obey. And so Elihu is claiming a different source and authority of his opinion. It's not just something he made up. It's not something that he received from the fathers. No, something he received from God himself. And so he speaks 
Again, verse 9 says, The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. Wisdom and justice are so much key ideas together. If you are just, you're wise. If you're wise, you're just. If you will discern, you'll be able to uh, tell the difference between right and wrong and and good and evil and so forth. Wisdom is not just uh, to make a better mousetrap. No, it's to obey God and know how he wants us to live. And so he brings those two ideas together and says, doesn't depend on age. Depends on how God is revealing himself to us and how much we are lined up with God's own revelation. So in verse, verse 10 says, I say, listen to me. I too will tell my knowledge. You guys have had your turn. You guys are silent now. And in a legal context, whoever is the silent party recognizes, I don't have anything else to say. I've lost the argument. I'm not going to waste my time saying anything else. And so Elihu enters into that void of, of discussion. Beginning at verse 11, says it's not just that God speaks. We need to hear from him. We need his word. And Elihu is the one who is going to give that word to the people. So in verse 11, he says, Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I even carefully considered you. Behold, there was no one who approved Job, not one of you who answered his words. Lest you say, you know, we found wisdom. God will drive him away, not man. Now he has not arranged his word against me, nor will I respond to him with your words. Elihu says, look, I waited for you. I was giving ear. I consider. It wasn't just, you know, you listen to somebody so you can fashion your arguments and, and you're not really listening, but you're just saying, you know, waiting for them to pause so you can enter your words. No, he says he was considering. What, what are they guys saying? What are they claiming about God? What are they claiming about themselves? What are they accusing Job of? What is Job thinking about himself? He is thinking and, and reasoning through all these different arguments that they're offering. And he, verse 12 says, I carefully considered you. Where are you coming from? And what is your basis of authority and so forth? And you failed in your, your mission. You could not reprove Job. You could not bring him to the end of himself and recognize, you know, not necessarily that sin is causing his suffering, but in his suffering, he has sinned. He has spoken things that are not right about God. And they were not able to reprove him in that regard. He says in verse 13, lest you say or lest you claim hate, we have found wisdom after all. We know how this is going to be, and God is going to be the one to reprove him. Well, it's true. God will reprove him, but they failed. They were supposed to be emissaries, representatives of God, caring for one another, speaking the word of God to one another. Romans fifteen fourteen, Paul says about the Romans, I know that you're full of wisdom and all this, and able to admonish one another, to counsel one another. They were failing. They couldn't do it at all. And they says, well, God will be the one to have to show them. And we claim that a lot of times ourselves. We say, I, I've tried, I've spoken the truth, and God's going to have to be the one to change his heart or her heart. And, and we, we acknowledge that to be true. It doesn't remove our responsibility to speak the truth. These friends were not speaking the truth. And so to, to say that, well, God's going to have to take care of it. Well, that's a cop-out. You haven't represented God. You haven't spoken God's truth. You haven't spoken God's mind. And so you can't just say, well, God will take care of it. No, you, you have failed in your mission. And verse 14 says, he has not arranged his words against me. He's talking about Job. Job hasn't been arguing against me. And therefore, I don't have to respond using your words. His accusations are against you, your faulty, your faulty understanding of God and Job's situation. So I'm not going to argue. I'm going to respond to him in the same way that you would because that's an entirely different subject. I'm going to approach it differently, different source of authority, a different uh, object of authority. And so I'm not going to repeat the same thing. Because a lot of people say, well, Elihu is just saying the same thing as the friends did. It's just more flowery or whatever. No, it's really not. 
He's not saying the same thing as Job. He is saying he's offering an entirely new contribution, a correction, not just to Job, but to the friends as well. And he goes on, and we'll see as we, as we survey his, his speeches here. Verses uh, 15 uh, and 16 are words that, that Elihu says kind of from the perspective or, or he was speaking directly to the friends. Now he, he kind of gives a, a summary statement about them. He says, they, the friends, that is, are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have moved away from them. Shall I wait? Elihu says, because they do not speak, because they stand still and no longer answer. So he is, he is saying, kind of entering into their minds and saying, they're not talking, so I'm going to talk. And, and uh, I've waited for a long time for them. And now we're going to move on. And so he goes on and, and starts speaking God's word. Verse 7 yeah, Elihu must speak, verse 17. It's not just we need to hear from God, but it is a, a necessity for Elihu himself to speak. Verse 17 says, I myself will also answer my share. I'll also tell my knowledge, for I am full of words. The spirit within my belly presses me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, not open, like new wineskins. It's about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon carry me away. He is speaking about his sharing his knowledge, his insight, his understanding of what God is doing in this world. He's not speaking uh, about um, uh, this, this arrogance that he is, he's proud, he's this young buck and I enter and correct everybody. No, he's speaking eagerly. He's got this, this burden, this, this, uh, this necessity to speak and he says, I've got to, got to speak. He says, I am full of words and somebody said, obviously he's full of words because he has so many words in these, these chapters but it, he, it's, it's something, when you have a message from God, you've got to share it. You've got to tell somebody, right, about what God is doing and to, and to proclaim God's greatness and his majesty to all people. He compares himself to this this uh, uh, internal pressure in his belly, especially like unvented wine when it's not opened, like new wineskins that's about to burst. When the fermentation process is going with grape juice, it, it becomes wine, and, and there's just that, that expansion that he's about ready to... to there's going to be a problem here. It's going to be a mess. So let me speak, verse 20, so I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. He speaks about the, the progression of, of uh, speaking and the tongue moving and so forth. And he says in verse 21 and 22, it's kind of a play on words. Um, it, it works in Hebrew, kind of, sort of, not, doesn't really hear. Uh, he says, verse 21, let me now be partial to no one. Uh, literally, you read that, let me not lift the face of a man. Let me not... Uh, show partiality or, oh, oh, you're talking, I didn't know it was you kind of thing. And, oh, I'm going to show partiality because, oh, you're my friend or you're the big boss or have the big bucks. Or no. Job, or Elihu says, I'm not going to show partiality. I'm not going to lift my face or lift the face of somebody else uh, to, to uh, show partiality to them. I'm not going to flatter any person. Verse 22, I don't know how to flatter. You see the two uses of flatter there in the middle. On the outside there is, let me now be partial to no one, and then at the end of verse 22 says, else my maker would soon carry me away. Verse 21 can be translated, lift the face of, chapter, or verse 22 at the end says, else my maker would lift me away, carry me away. So you see the two flatteries and the two uh, lift your face or lift up kind of idea. So he's building a kind of a, it's poetry, right? Does these things. But he's saying, look, I don't, I'm going to speak objectively. I'm going to speak not based on my own understanding and so forth. I'm going to speak what is true and right and good. And uh, he's not going to flatter. One person I was listening to last week, I think it was Adrian Rogers perhaps, who said, you know, the difference between, between flattery and gossip. 
Flatter is what you would, uh, you would only say to somebody's face but never behind their back. But gossip is what you would never say to a person's face but always behind their back. So the gossip and flattery. Flattery says, look, I'm, I'm going to show honor. I'm going to be partial to you. Job Elihu says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak what is right because my maker is listening. My maker judges rightly and he will uh, condemn me if I speak what is not right. Briefly looking at chapter 33 before we're done today. Again, he responds or now he, he addresses his words to Job. He had been speaking to the friends. Now he says directly to Job that you need to listen. Listen to me. And he repeats that, that call uh, many times here in, these, in this chapter. He says, listen, hear my speech, give ear to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth, my tongue and my mouth speaks. And he goes on, I'm not going to read this whole text. Well, I'd love to. Verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's appealing again, not just he's alive, but God himself is speaking, revealing himself through Elihu's speech. And he says, he's really um, asking Job to consider his words, not just you know let the be like water off a duck's back, but listen and engage my thoughts because I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you, Job. Respond to me if you can. Arrange yourselves before me and take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of clay. Behold, no dread of me should terrify you, nor should my pressure weigh heavily upon you. Here, Elihu is doing several things. Verse verse, uh, 1, he is summoning Job to listen, right? Here now, uh, listen to me. Then he says in verse 2, it's a statement, a declaration, I'm speaking now. It's me speaking. My tongue speaks. And verse 3, he says, look, I'm speaking sincerely. So we have a summons. We have a statement in verse 2, a sincerity that Elihu is speaking of in verse 3 here. Verse 4 speaks about the spirit. He is spirit-formed, spirit-filled even. Verse 5 says, uh, this is a serious matter. So there's a seriousness attached to his words. Respond to me if you can. Arrange yourself. Think, you know, put yourself in order before me because I'm telling you what the truth is. And finally, in verse uh, well, not finally, but in verse 6, he says, there's sympathy. I'm, I'm not anything different than you. I'm, I'm made out of clay just like you. Uh, remember, Job had two requests of the Lord. You know, stop pressing down on me for just a moment. Let me catch my breath. And then when I come before you to argue my case before you, don't terrify me with your majesty, your greatness, your glory. Elihu says, nah, you shouldn't be terrified of me. I'm just like you, just a person made of, dick, made of clay, made of dust. My pressure should not weigh heavily upon you. So there is sympathy, even in that regard. He goes on in verse 8. He says, uh, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to answer you. I'm going to answer your charges and what you are saying, claiming about God. I'm going to help you understand these things. I want you to realize that there is a purpose in your affliction. It has nothing to do with sin, that you sin, therefore you're suffering. No, but there is a purpose that God is accomplishing in your suffering that you don't understand. You don't see it. You're not getting the clue here. And his, his process about doing this is to paraphrase some of Job's claims and then to give a refutation of it and to, to say, well, you, you said these things wrong. He's going to do that a few times here in his speeches. But he's trying to help Job uh, realize what's going on and how he is not right. He says in verse 8, Surely you've spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your speech. Same thing. Why, why is he doing that? Because Hebrew poetry does that. It, it, it's, it's not so much the words rhyme, it's the thoughts that rhyme. And so I've, you've spoken, I've heard, and all these things. And he says, these are claims that Job makes about himself. He makes four claims in verses 9 through 11. He claims, hey, I am pure, without transgression, I'm innocent, and there's no guilt in me. Well, that's kind of a harsh statement, but wait a minute. Elihu is just quoting Job to a point, maybe paraphrasing, summarizing some things. 
Job does say that he is pure. This is a, a word that is used not very often in, in Job. Uh, it's used more of it by his friends or the comforters, the, the guys uh, that Bildad, for example, in Job 8 and verse 6 says, if you are pure and upright, if, you're, if you really are pure or uh, clear uh, without any default and upright, that's our word, um, blameless. And if you're really like that, then certain things will happen. Job only uses the word pure in relation to his prayer. So he never says, I am pure before God. No, he says, my, my prayer, I offer a pure prayer before God, but he doesn't really claim himself to be pure in this way. He does argue his blamelessness, and that, of course, is not improper because our opening verse says that Job was blameless and upright and so forth. He claims that he is not wicked. He is an upright person, and so that is, is true. But Elihu says, look, you're claiming things about yourself that you're somehow more pure even than God, more righteous than God. That's not right. He says, secondly, you, are, you claim that you are without transgression. Well, Job would acknowledge his transgression. He says, for example, in Job 7, verse 21, why then do you not forgive my transgression? Take away my iniquity. And he says elsewhere, 13, verse 23, make known to me my transgressions. What have I done? What have I done to cause all this suffering? And he says elsewhere about his sufferings or his, his transgressions, even in the previous chapters, chapter 31, verse 33, if I have covered my transgressions like Adam. So the point is, he is saying that he is blameless in some regards, but he's not claiming this free of transgression so much, but it's informing his, his whole reason reasoning that, that somehow this, there's no reason why I should be suffering this way. Why has God distances himself from me? I'm innocent, he says thirdly here. I am uh, washed clean. I am without any kind of imperfection or, uh, or guilt or anything like that. And so I should have no punishment, the fourth uh, claim here. There's no guilt, no, no necessity of punishment, no iniquity in my life. But Job does acknowledge that. Again, 721, he says, why don't you forgive my transgression, take away my iniquity, my guilt, my, my uh, uh, due justice by God. But he says, look, I have put away iniquity so much for my life. Chapter 31, verse 11, uh, adultery would be iniquity punishable by judges. Idolatry, in verse 28, would have been iniquity calling for judgment. And he says, I, I haven't done these things. All the friends say he has, but he says, no. He has claims about God. Claims about God, in verse uh, 12. He finds reason for opposition against me. What's God doing? He's used to be my friend. Now he's acting to me like an enemy. In fact, he counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and keeps watch over all my paths. These are really direct quotations from what Job has said earlier in his in his statements that God somehow don't understand why is Job my why is God my enemy why has he counted me as his opponent do you remember I pointed this out earlier that the Hebrew name Hebrew word for enemy and the Hebrew name Job are very the same you think well how's that Job can be enemy well it's like Job is saying God is treating me like a Job and you think, well, that's kind of true because you're, you're being an enemy against him. You're speaking things that are not right about him and accusing him of doing wrong. And so Job says, no, you, you count, God counts me as his enemy. He's put my feet in the stocks, keeps watch over all my paths, which is a direct quotation in uh, Job 13, verse 27, 28. It talks about keeping his feet in the stocks and keeping watch over all his paths. But Elihu says, no, let me answer you, verse 12. You're not right in this, for God is greater than mortal man. God is greater than mortal man. This phrase, God is greater than mortal man, it's the only place I could find that, the specific way that he says it there. It's greater 
than is, is the word that has to do with increase or, or uh, being full or, or numerous or just big. And he says God is greater than mortal man. And the word mortal man is not just your, your average uh, person made like Adam and Eve. No, it is uh, really emphasizing the mortality. In fact, that's why they put that adjective mortal it has to do with the the fallenness the the frailty of humanity you have god is great and then you have you you're not you're not god you're you can't claim any of his greatness against yourself other phrases other times where god is described as great it uses a different word that, that means something different but here it's talking about something that is is so full it's kind of like isaiah 6 the train of his robe I mean, not just god himself but the train of his robe filled the temple and here you are, arguments, God, what are you doing saying all these things? Let me answer you. Why do you contend against him? Why are you arguing? And this is what God himself is going to say. Where is the fault finder who contends, who argues, who not just reproves, but, but accuses with the expectation he's guilty, uh, not assumed innocent until proven guilty. No, God is guilty, and I'm contending with God. And Elihu says, why? What are you doing contending, arguing against him? Because he does not give an answer for all or any of his doings. God doesn't have to explain himself to you. And by the way, isn't it nice that we can say, Oh, Job's really getting what for, isn't he? Elihu, yeah, go after him. He's talking to us. Why do we contend with the Almighty? Why do we argue and say, God, if you had just done this, like Martha and Mary, have you, Lord, if you just come a day earlier, you could have, or a little bit earlier, we could have saved Lazarus. Why do you do it this way? contending with God and saying, God, you know, if you just asked me first, I could have told you what should have been done. Isn't that how we respond to God sometimes? But Job is saying, excuse me, Elihu is saying to Job, why do you contend? God doesn't have to give an answer. He doesn't have to explain anything. And by the way, when you read chapters 38 to 41, God doesn't answer Job's accusations. He lets Job know who he is. I am God. I am I know all things, and I can do all things, and you better just rest in that. You're not going to understand all what's going on. God speaks to us in so many different ways. Let me just briefly do this so we can move on. God does speak in verses 14 through 28. God speaks through conscience. Uh, you can read about this in verse 15. You think, well, no, he's talking about dreams and visions. Well, yes, but it's the dreams and visions that prick the conscience of the person, recognizing, hey, uh, that God is going to turn that man, that person aside from his conduct and keep the man away from pride. It's very similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, that God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from getting proud. Paul, you had a problem with, with pride? Yeah, because of the greatness of the revelation given to me. I, wow, he has spoken to me things I can't tell you. And that can get kind of heady. And so God says, I have given you these dreams to Job and other people to keep them from pride and to keep them from punishment, to keep back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over to death by a by a weapon. God speaks in the conscience or through the conscience, but also in verses 19 through 28, God speaks through, this is very important for Job, through human suffering. Man is reproved with pain on his bed, with unceasing contention in his bones, and so forth. His soul draws near to the pit, but verse 28, 3 says there's an angel. There's somebody coming on behalf of that sufferer as a mediator for him. One out of a thousand, which is to say, not a, it's not a common occurrence. It's, it's a special uh, honor, honorary uh, person coming to uh, mediate on, on the sufferer's behalf to declare to a man what is right for him, what is the right way for this person to go, and then let him, the deliverer, be gracious to the sufferer and say, deliver him. You know, d- d- 
Don't put them into the pit. Get them out of there. I have found atonement. I found a ransom uh, so that this person doesn't have to uh, pay for his sins. I've, I've rescued him and delivered him from that. That's what Job has been yearning for, right? Oh, if there was just a mediator, an adjudicator that could uh, argue my case before God. And then he says, the result of this is here. Let his flesh become fresher than a youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will entreat God and God will accept him. And he will see his face with joyful shouts and he may restore his righteousness to man. And he goes on and sings about these wonderful things, that there is a salvation that is accomplished. Suffering, yes, but it teaches us to draw near to God and find the redemption that is available to us by his grace. He says in verse 29 and 30, God does all these things uh, twice, three times with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened, enlightened with the light of life. This is the truth, the, the result of redemption that God provides. God is speaking. Job, you think God's not speaking? God is speaking to you through the dreams, through the visions, through the, the slumber on your bed. But he's also speaking through your suffering. So pay attention. Listen to him. Recognize God is doing these things twice, three times with men. God is so patient. Uh, we, we should regard the patience of our Lord as salvation as as an opportunity to repent notice it says god will do that infinitely god will be just so gracious even after death oh that's be that'd be fine just we can repent after death <coughs> a lot of people are counting on that that oh well we'll figure things out after i die well, we'll I'll, I'll have a meeting we'll have a little conference and i'll it'll all be straightened out no no there is no option no recovery after death uh hebrews nine twenty seven. After death, there is judgment. Well, but no, it'll be fine. No, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man had no opportunity. He knew that there was no hope for him, but he says, go back to my brothers and warn them. And, and, and Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, but if someone had returned from the dead, they won't even listen to somebody resurrected from the dead because they're so hard-hearted. God is kind, he's gracious, twice, three times he, he allows, he's working through suffering, trying to teach people, warning them of the wrath to come, but they don't listen. But there is an end to God's patience in that regard. So the urgency is for Job, verse 31 and 30 and following, pay attention, Job, listen to me, keep silent, I'm going to speak to you. Then if you have any speech, you can respond. Speak, for I desire to prove you righteous. I want to declare you righteous. I want you to, to stand on your own two feet to glorify God and not speak these foolish things against him. If not, if you won't you know, relate or, or um, engage with my, my speaking, if not, listen to me, keep silent, I'll teach you wisdom. If you won't respond to me in a good way, I'm going to tell you what you need to repent of. I need to, I'm going to tell you who God is and how he is so great and he is just and, and all these things that Job needs to get a grip of, a grip on before God himself is going to come and appear before him. And all these things, this is a message of hope. Elihu is saying, God is gracious to you, Job. God is so gracious. He is speaking to you in, your, in the, the conscience through convicting you of your sin. It's not that Job sinned and therefore he's suffering, but in his suffering he has saying, said things and believed things and, and, and oriented his whole life around things that aren't true. Job, listen to God's grace toward you. I'm offering a message of hope, a message of restoration. Not so you get all the prosperity stuff, but you can get a better revelation, a better understanding of God himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth, the honor that you show to those who trust in you and find refuge in you. And we pray that we would respond well to Elihu's admonition to us, that we would listen to you as you speak through our conscience, as we listen, or as we feel the 
the weight of our sin as we think, boy, my, my words are not right or my actions or my attitudes are just not right. And you bring a conscience, a, a conviction in our spirits. And we're so thankful for that. We thank you for your truth through suffering, even how you are active in these things. And we pray that we would speak rightly about you, that we'd believe rightly about you, that we would honor you in all these things because you are holy and righteous and good and sovereign and you know all things and you judge righteously. Please help us to believe in you, that you are God and we're not, we're not him. We are creatures made in your image and we want to honor you. Please again save, please sanctify us for your good pleasure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.